0: Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hello everyone. I know we are behind and come follow me and I promise I'll work to catch up. But before we get into the chapters of the Book of Alma, I want to go out of order a little and do a special episode that has relevancy to current events. More specifically, I want to see what the Book of Mormon has to say about America's legacy of racial injustice, as well as this movement that we see right now to reform what's going on. Here's your heads up. This is going to be a sober episode you may get uncomfortable. I'm not an expert in systemic racism, and I don't propose that any of the following is in any way an official interpretation of the scriptures. But I have to say something. I also want to acknowledge that I'm a white man and that my experience of living in this country is heavily conditioned by those two realities. We are living in a historic moment. Future generations will look back on 2020 as if the events that we are experiencing are clearly discernible and etched in stone, because they will already know how it turns out, and because that's how we like our history. We like history in the form of monuments, and some monuments certainly have their place, but monuments also obscure history by giving us a false sense of simplicity and familiarity. I'll give you two examples from my own life. I used to work in Washington, D.C., and obviously there are a lot of monuments and memorials all over the place. You've all seen pictures, but there's nothing quite like being there. It feels like sacred space when you're standing at the feet of Lincoln as he sits enthroned in his temple. Literally, the inscription on the wall refers to the memorial as a temple. It's the closest I can imagine to coming to standing in the Temple of Zeus. You could never have read a single book on Lincoln and still come away feeling admiration, gratitude, familiarity, and even love for him, just from the experience of being there. I want to contrast that with another way that a historical moment has been preserved and passed down. I was born in Germany while my dad was in the military, and I was able to go back and visit the summer I turned 11. I toured cathedrals and castles, and I climbed the Zugspitze. To this day, Bavaria is one of my favorite places on earth. That summer, I also visited a concentration camp. I was 11. I had an 11-year-old's understanding of World War II and Nazi Germany. I hated it. I felt sick to my stomach the whole time. I just remember bits and pieces, but the memory that has stayed with me the most was moving through the camp from one station to the next, thinking that I was going to get some relief from the feeling that I had, but it just kept on getting worse and worse. We can contrast how those two bits of history have been memorialized. I love the Lincoln Memorial, but I think the concentration camp does a better job at putting context to a world changing event. Now, Germany could have done it differently. They could choose to present the Holocaust in other contexts. There were certainly stories that Germans told about themselves and about Jews, blacks, homosexuals, and political dissidents that got people to buy into the Nazi regime. That's context too. But the concentration camp put an event in the context of the lives of people, people who Jesus might call the least of these. I've studied World War II much more extensively since then, and I'm now fairly conversant in the economic, political, cultural, and religious factors that led to the rise of the Nazi regime. But no amount of sterilized data can whitewash the feeling I got at that camp when I was 11. There is no justification for what was done to our brothers and sisters. It was evil. So when future generations study 2020, how will it be presented? What will be the defining issues? What will be the context used to help people make meaning out of what is happening. I think we can all agree that if it were to get anywhere near to what the experience has been like, it would at the very least feel messy, confusing, and overwhelming. Not so much a marble statue, but some way to put future feet in our present-day shoes. I believe that the Book of Mormon is the Lord's intended tool for gathering Israel in our day. I also believe that, When we get past taglines and into the nitty-gritty details of what gathering Israel means, we begin to see that we are talking about people's lives, their hearts, minds, emotions, and families. The gospel asserts that Christ is the healing balm for all of mortality's ailments, and that one of the primary ways we are to receive that healing is in communities. Why else would we need to gather people into a covenant community if not to help people receive that healing and the Book of Mormon is the tool designated for that gathering work. That means it has to have something to say about people's lives, their hearts, minds, emotions, and families, and not just people 2000 years ago or people 200 years ago, but people today. And I believe it does. Race in the Book of Mormon is a big subject. So I'm going to narrow this episode down to what may be the most cited verse on race in the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi twenty-six thirty-three. 33. Here it is in full. For none of these iniquities come of the Lord, for he doeth that which is good among the children of men, and he doeth nothing save it be plain unto the children of men. And he inviteth them all to come unto him and to partake of his goodness. And he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. And he remembereth the heathen, and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. It's a powerful idea that even though we as humans place all kinds of barriers on each other, things like race, gender, membership in a given community, none of those are barriers that Christ places on us. And it stands to reason that any community wanting to take the name of Christ would follow that example. Beautiful. But there's more that this verse has to say, and about our day specifically. Let's back up and add some context. If you've been listening to this show, you should know by now that I couldn't just read a verse without looking at how the author has structured their writing. In this case, the author is Nephi, and he's just wrapped up a major section of 2 Nephi, his extended quotation of Isaiah. I know that that's your favorite part of 2 Nephi, so I don't need to explain to you any of that, right? Well, however much we do or don't understand Isaiah, Nephi begins in chapter 25 by saying that he knows that his people don't understand. So he's going to give them a prophecy as plain as he can to help them understand why he loves Isaiah so much and what Isaiah has to say about them. Nephi can speak in the spirit of prophecy because he's a prophet. He's been shown things that the rest of us haven't, and he's actually told us about some of those things. Way back in first Nephi, he had this sweeping vision that began with his father's dream about the tree of life, but went on to include the birth, life, ministry and death of Jesus Christ, the persecution of the church, the appearance of Jesus Christ, to the Lehites, the great apostasy, the complete destruction of the Nephites, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the latter day work all the way through the second coming and the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. He's a witness and a guide. So he's going to walk us through all of this. The Isaiah chapters end in 2nd Nephi 24 and chapters 25 through 27, originally one big long chapter are basically the summary of Nephi's vision with particular emphasis on what this all means for his people. 25 is where we get his beautiful words about doing all that we can, including in the case of his people, keeping the law of Moses as an effort to be reconciled to Christ. Because Christ's grace is the only thing that can save us. The summary of his vision moves into chapter 26, and Nephi focuses in even more on his descendants. He sees their destruction, and it guts him. Can you imagine being a young man, not even having a family or children yet, and seeing the genocide of your descendants in a vision? That's what he's trying to articulate here. Remember that he's writing as an old man, and he's carried that trauma his whole life. According to Nephi, his people will be destroyed, but they'll also produce a record, and that record will be brought to light at a future date, to a people that Nephi refers to as the Gentiles. Now, if we go back to the original vision, the description is pretty clear that to Nephi, the Gentiles are Western European colonizers in the Americas. That will be an important point to remember so that we can understand Nephi's warnings in 2 Nephi 26. This section of 2 Nephi is also riddled with references to Isaiah 29, a chapter where Nephi has found language that he thinks appropriately describes the emergence and function of this future Nephite record among the Gentiles. One example is that he says, "...the prayers of the faithful shall be heard, and all those who have dwindled in unbelief shall not be forgotten. For those who shall be destroyed shall speak unto them out of the ground." And their speech shall be low out of the dust, and their voice shall be one that hath a familiar spirit. For the Lord God will give unto him power, that is, to the one who brings forth the record, that he may whisper concerning them, even as it were out of the ground, and their speech shall whisper out of the dust. So this Nephite record that will one day emerge isn't passive. It's a voice of a people that has been destroyed, and who are earnestly speaking out across generations. Let's step back for a moment and set aside what we know about the Book of Mormon. If a people, any people, has been completely destroyed and they are now speaking out, what do you think that people would consider the most important message to be? At least in part, it has to be, don't do what we did. Don't be like us or else you're going to suffer our fate. In fact, the Lord is explicit about that message throughout the Book of Mosiah. That surviving records like the Jaredite plates or the Book of Mormon are supposed to reveal the wickedness of the destroyed people. Is that how we normally read the Book of Mormon? I don't think so. I certainly wasn't taught to pay attention to the wickedness of the Nephites. The Lamanites were supposed to be the wicked ones, right? But it's the Nephites who were destroyed, and it's the descendants of the Lamanites who are supposed to be gathered in by the Book of Mormon. Maybe it's time for a new approach. So what are the sins of the Nephites? We've talked about it in previous episodes. Nephites struggle with pride. In Benjamin's words, Nephites struggle seeing themselves as beggars. That's not a groundbreaking revelation. We talk about, quote, the pride cycle all the time. But when you say something so many times and so often, you stop being curious about it. So let me put that same phenomenon in a different way. The Nephites had a problem worshipping false gods. They worshipped the false god of wealth. They worshipped the false god of chosenness. They worshipped the false god of gender superiority. And most relevant to our discussion here, they worshipped the false god of skin color superiority. Or to put it in a more familiar way, the false god of racism. Over and over again, Nephite authors describe the Lamanites as filthy, and often this description is connected with the color of their skin. Now, there are different ways of understanding the issue of skin color in the Book of Mormon. Some scholars believe that it has nothing to do with phenotype, but is rather a symbolic description of the spiritual state of the Lamanites, and there's absolutely something to that argument. Race is a cultural construct, not a biological reality. Any understanding that ancient Nephites had of race would be dramatically different than a 21st century American reader. So to assume at face value that skin color has the same meaning in the Book of Mormon as it does today is going to lead us down the wrong path. This view of skin being only symbolic in the Book of Mormon could be bolstered by the church's essay on race and the priesthood which states unequivocally that the church does not believe that skin color is a sign of disfavor. That seems to conflict with the Book of Mormon, doesn't it? Well, not if skin color is strictly symbolic. There are other ways that people approach skin color in the Book of Mormon, and I can't go through them all. But one way that has recently shown up in church curriculum is to distinguish the curse that God places on the Lamanites from the sign of the curse, the color of their skin. At first, we may think this sounds better than saying that dark skin is a curse, which is a traditional view that is well represented throughout the history of the church, specifically in American Christianity in general. But is it really that much better? Think about what a sign is. A sign signifies something. A stop sign, for example, signifies a law requiring drivers to stop driving for a few seconds before they can continue. Why a stop sign though? Why that shape, color, and word? Because we have all agreed to the significance or meaning of those symbols. The shape is easily recognizable. The color draws our attention and having learned to read English, we know what the letters S T O P mean. We're taught the meaning of this symbol from an early age. There's a general consensus that these are appropriate symbols. And so we stop at the sign. But why in the world would we think that dark skin is an appropriate sign for spiritual filthiness? It should be noted that when this interpretation of skin color made its way into the Come Fall Me curriculum for the Book of Mormon this year, the church very publicly issued a correction and reiterated our belief that skin color is not a sign of divine disfavor. We aren't going to settle the debate on whether skin in the Book of Mormon is strictly symbolic and in no way descriptive of phenotype, but I think it's safe to say that generations of readers have understood the description of skin color in the Book of Mormon to mean that the Nephites had lighter skin, even white skin if you look at popular depictions, and the Lamanites had dark skin. So, Knowing that there are other ways to read the issue of skin color in the Book of Mormon, let's lean into the traditional understanding. What if, when the Book of Mormon says skin, it means that Nephites believed skin color was a sign of divine disfavor? What do we do then with the statement by the church? The reasonable conclusion is that the Nephites were wrong to associate skin color with the spiritual standing of an entire people. Remember, we're not just supposed to learn from their righteousness. Nephi prophesied, The prayers of the faithful shall be heard, and all those who have dwindled in unbelief shall not be forgotten. The Nephites are destroyed, and their record is crying out so that future people don't suffer the same fate. Back to Second Nephi 26. Nephi has prophesied the destruction of his people and the emergence of the Book of Mormon, and now he's going to talk about the people who will receive that record. Starting in verse 20, Nephi writes, And the Gentiles are lifted up in the pride of their eyes, and have stumbled because of the greatness of their stumbling block, that they have built up many churches. Nevertheless, they put down the power and miracles of God, and preach unto themselves their own wisdom and their own learning." That they make it gain and grind upon the face of the poor, and there are many churches built up which cause envyings and strifes and malice. Remember, Gentiles are the Western European colonizers of the Americas, and they have problems. Their stumbling block is in the pride of their eyes, and it's not a tiny thing. Nephi says that this issue of pride is massive. How does Nephi know this? He has seen it in a vision. And we know enough about the history of colonization to guess at some of the things that might have caused him to say this. He says, there are many churches. So this is a religiously motivated effort. Weren't Spanish and Portuguese efforts to colonize tied up with religion and religious competition? What about British and French colonization? Nephi isn't speaking about this in hushed reverence, as we sometimes do about our ancestors coming to the new world. He says that these religious efforts will be filled with envying, strifes and malice. He makes clear that these religious movements won't be about the power of God, but about getting gain and grinding upon the face of the poor. What could Nephi be describing? Knowing what we know about the history of the Americas, we can assume that he saw the genocide of indigenous peoples and the genocide of African people through slavery. Are there any clearer examples of a wealthy religious class of Western Europeans grinding upon the faces of the poor? I'm going to be transparent here. I know that discussing racism makes many members of the church uncomfortable, especially white members. This isn't unique to the church. White people in America are, on the whole, uncomfortable talking about race, even uncomfortable being referred to by their race. But we're going to keep going with this. Let's just entertain the possibility that thus far, I've interpreted Nephi correctly. He may be referring to all kinds of things that he has seen in the future of the promised land, but let's just imagine that among those things, he's referring to the animating doctrine that goes back to long before 1776, the doctrine of racial superiority and its effects in the West. With that in mind, this is what he says next. And there are also secret combinations, even as in times of old, according to the combinations of the devil, for he is the founder of all these things, yea, the founder of murder and works of darkness. If we're thinking about white superiority in the United States, what are the secret combinations? Nephi has a reference to times of old. Let's jump over to the book of Moses and try and figure out what he means. Moses 5 takes us back to the story of Cain and Abel. And this is what Cain says. Truly, I am the master of this great secret that I may murder and get gain. That's the secret that launches the secret combinations. What are the systems and organizations throughout U.S. history that have used murder, terror and oppression to get gain? The genocide of indigenous human beings and slavery of African human beings has to be at the top of that list. And clearly, it didn't end with emancipation. Now, ironically, one of the ways that white Christians have justified their system of owning black human beings was by saying that they were descendants of Cain. And one of the ways that church members have justified the priesthood and temple ban was by also saying that black people were descendants of Cain, in part because of Moses 5. The church has unequivocally disavowed those teachings. Nephi uses the term secret combinations to let us know that these evils won't just be the result of poor choices of individuals or bad people who just choose to be terrible. A combination is an understanding between more than one person, an organization, something bigger than an individual. So we can't just think about what Nephi is telling us here in terms of individual choice. We have to learn to think systemically. You might be wanting to push back right now. You might say that I'm projecting my own biases on the text and I'm putting words in Nephi's mouth. And you know what? To a degree, I am. But it's my turn to push back and say that I'm not projecting as much as you may think. Listen to how he describes these secret combinations in verses 22 through 23. And there are also secret combinations even as in times of old according to the combinations of the devil for he is the founder of all these things yea the founder of murder and works of darkness yea and he leadeth them by the neck with a flaxen cord until he bindeth them with his strong cords forever for behold my beloved brethren i say unto you that the lord god worketh not in darkness nephi is a genius We know that these systems of oppression and murder for the sake of gain have often led people by the neck with strong cords and chains. We can see in our mind's eye lines of our brothers and sisters bound around the neck. We can recall the illegal lynchings of black children of God. We can watch videos of George Floyd calling for his already deceased mother and telling the police officer kneeling on his neck, That he can't breathe. In my reading, Nephi the prophet says that as often and as long as secret combinations use racial superiority to murder black and brown people for gain, as long as God's children are being bound around the neck, Satan will be wrapping the flaxen cord of white supremacy around the neck of those who believe in and participate in its systems until he bindeth them with his strong cords forever. That is the great stumbling block of the Gentiles, the pride of their eyes. At this very moment, hundreds of thousands of people are marching in the streets, and we may or may not understand what they are saying. Nobody, no matter the color of their skin, is at fault for how they were raised and acculturated, and those things impact how we understand the world and this moment. But we have come to the point in society where a significant number of our brothers and sisters are desperately trying to remind the rest of us that black lives, their lives, matter as much as all other human life. We ourselves may not understand how the criminal justice system and mass incarceration are examples of systemic racism, but our lack of understanding doesn't overrule the cry of God's children when they say that their life is as sacred as ours. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, David and Goliath, says, Legitimate authority requires three things. First, the people who are being asked to obey that authority have to feel like they have a voice, like they're being heard. Second, the law has to be predictable. There has to be reasonable expectation that the rules tomorrow are going to be roughly the same as the rules today. And third, the authority has to be fair. It can't treat one group differently from another. Your experience of the criminal justice system may align with these three rules, but millions of people are telling us that theirs do not. So what's the answer? Nephi tells us that God doesn't work in darkness. He doesn't work according to our artificial boundaries. He says Come unto me, all ye ends of the earth, buy milk and honey without money and without price. Behold, hath he commanded any that they should depart out of the synagogues or out of the houses of worship? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. Hath he commanded any that they should not partake of his salvation? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. But he hath given it free for all men, and he hath commanded his people that they should persuade all men to repentance. Behold, hath the Lord commanded any that they should not partake of his goodness? Behold, I say unto you, Nay, but all are privileged, the one like unto the other, and none are forbidden. This week, President Nelson called on all who ascribe to racism to repent. Every single one of us should be responding to that call, and not just as individuals, but through reforming our combinations that are so secret that we may not even be aware of how they function in our lives. Nephi wants us to be wiser than that. He warned us of combinations, organizations, and systems, all founded on the principle of utilizing murder to get gain. We need to become aware, and we need to get to work changing the legacy of racial injustice in the United States. If we bear the name of the Lord, our job is to clear the path for people to come to partake of his goodness. All obstacles, whether that means things pertaining to addiction or chastity or basic human trials like hunger, poverty, disease, lack of access to quality education or police brutality, become our responsibility. We are charged with creating a world where people feel unrestrained to partake of his goodness. Do our congregations look like our communities? If not, are there obstacles, whether internal or external, that we need to get to work clearing out of the way? And this is not to increase membership in our organization versus others, but we have to work because we are witnesses of the goodness of God, the love of God, And we believe that true healing is found in gathered Israel and the Messiah. Nephi warns us, maybe especially members of the church. He commanded that there shall be no priestcrafts. For behold, priestcraft are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world. But they seek not the welfare of Zion, religion, the gospel, the word of God, is not to be used as a prop for gain, publicity, or votes. Wherefore, he says, the Lord God hath given a commandment that all men should have charity, and charity is love, and except they should have charity, they were nothing. Wherefore, if they should have charity, they would not suffer the laborer in Zion to perish, but the laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion, for if they labor for money, they shall perish. Is Zion our vision, one heart and one mind, dwelling in righteousness with no poor among us? How expansive is that vision? Does it include the whole human family across all space, time, and divisions? Chapter 26 finishes with a review of the Ten Commandments and finally our scripture reminding us that all are alike unto God. All are alike unto God. But if I'm being honest, all aren't alike to me. I have some repenting to do. And I have to work to make sure that my sons don't inherit the cursed traditions of their father. No justification that I use to explain why I think others are deserve less happiness, or more misery than I do, is more powerful than God's love for those people. The church teaches us that the only organization that exists in eternity is family, and I need to repent and continue repenting until my family is the same as God's family. This is a messy moment. It would be great if we could Experience it like a visit to the Lincoln Memorial, take a tour, take a selfie, make a post on social media, and walk away feeling righteous. But that's not how it works. We aren't guaranteed that type of success. It's going to take more resolve than a few taps on a screen, and if we don't heed Nephi's warning about the false gods of racism and answer President Nelson's call to repent, me, and everyone else but especially me then we'll just go back to our lives until another child of god cries out that they can't breathe the book of mormon has something to say about this moment i pray to god that we listen to the nephite voices crying out pleading with us to not just see their righteousness but their wickedness as well and maybe in the process of opening our ears to their cries into to the cries of our brothers and sisters, we can develop eyes to see our own wickedness and repent. Black Lives Matter. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Ison.